the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. because a lot of people start to say, no, we don't think that's true anymore, does not change truth. Truth is non-negotiable. But that's what we're living in right now. We're living in a culture when there's a lot of voices saying certain things, and the louder the voices and the more the voices, people will begin to think, well, then that must mean that truth is not as we thought it was. No, truth, if it's absolute and if it's true, it never changes. In our modern day, truth has become somewhat of a relative thing to a vast majority of people. Truth can be whatever we make it to be. Things can be done that shouldn't be done. Things that are one thing can become another. But in today's message, Pastor Gary will remind you that when it comes to truth, the Bible is the ultimate source. Whenever we have questions, we can take them to the Bible, and we can find biblically correct answers every time. The truth of the Bible is final, and it's always accurate. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew chapter 10 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So as we were uh, making our way from chapter 9 into chapter 10 of Matthew, remember that chapter 9 ends by Jesus saying that the fields are white unto harvest. Pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into his harvest field. He's saying that to his disciples. They must have quickly bowed their heads and prayed what he just asked them to do because then chapter 10 starts by saying uh, Jesus selects 12. You guys are going to be the workers into the harvest field. And we went through the list of the names of the 12 last week. And then he dispatches them. He sends them into uh, the region with authority. The Greek word is exousia. It's different from what we get when we are filled with the Spirit. We get power dunamis. They get authority. King James says power, but it's really a different Greek word. It's exousia because they are on assignment. And they are going to go and they're going to preach the good news. They're going to heal the sick. They're going to raise the dead. They're going to cast out demons. The Bible doesn't give us record of all that they actually did, but it says that that's why they were sent by Jesus. And as Jesus sends them, he gives them some instructions. That's what chapter 10 is all about. And I want you to read this with me, not just as marching orders for the apostles, but these are also instructions for us of what we are to expect if you are really going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we mentioned last week when we got through the first of what will be four points from chapter 10, we talked about how that we are to expect some persecution and rejection for being a Christian. 
because uh, from verses 11 through 23, Jesus is going to make the emphasis here about how they're going to be flogged, arrested, and even put to death. Now, that doesn't happen to them. They don't, they're not put to death at this time. They will later all be martyred. But this is, again, a broad statement about the kind of persecution that Christians will face when you really take a stand for Christ. And even Christians around the world are dying for their faith in defense of the truth. I've made this statement many times here, but the facts bear this out to be true, that there have been more Christians martyred for their faith in the last century than than in the previous 20 centuries combined since the church was founded. So there are still Christians dying around the world for their faith in Jesus Christ. We don't experience, obviously, that kind of cruelty and persecution that would require our lives, but uh, perhaps who knows the way the world will go, uh, that that might even be required of us. But at the very least, we will be persecuted in some way. We'll be rejected. We might be mocked. We might be ridiculed at the office or by friends or family members. That is to be expected. Some amount of persecution or rejection for being a Christian. Why? Because you're standing for truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He didn't say, I'm a truth. He said, I'm the truth. And when you stand for Jesus, who is truth, in a very relative world... You will be persecuted. You will be labeled. You will be called bigoted. You will be called intolerant. You will be called insensitive. You'll be called all kinds of things, narrow-minded, because you're standing for the truth. And what was commonly accepted as truth just a generation ago, you now have to fight to defend. And as a result, because it's becoming so relative in the world in which we live now and so politically correct, you will have to and I will have to take a stronger stand in defense of the truth than what we might have had to do otherwise a generation ago because things were more commonly accepted as true, but now culture is veering further and further away from God, further and further away from Scripture, further and further away from truth, and so it is still yours and my mission as, as, uh, as the ones who are called by God, as his ambassadors in this world, to represent truth in a godly way, in a loving way. Nobody's ever saying to be abrasive about this, but to be honest about it and to be true about it. And it might cost you when you stand for the truth. But how many of you understand that absolute truth, by definition, is non-negotiable? Just because a lot of people start to say, no, we don't think that's true anymore, does not change truth. Truth is non-negotiable. But that's what we're living in right now. We're living in a culture when there's a lot of voices saying certain things, and the louder the voices and the more the voices People will begin to think, well, then that must mean that truth is not as we thought it was. No, truth, if it's absolute and if it's true, it never changes. Adolf Hitler once said, make the lie big, make it simple, keep saying it, and eventually they will believe it, end quote. We're living in that time. People are going to say things that aren't true, They'll make simple statements that aren't true. They'll keep saying it over and over again until enough people finally will believe it. We're seeing that trending as we read polls and people's opinions about, you know, traditional marriage and issues about life and uh, as the way the world goes. And so we have to be firm in our faith and stand for what is true. And Jesus says, expect some persecution or rejection for being a Christian. Then when we look here, starting in verse 24, where we left off last week, He goes on, 
He says, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Now, he's talking about himself. He's the master. We're the servants. We are part of the household of faith. We are part of the house of God, and God is the head of the church, and God is the head of the house. And he says, look, you are to expect that if they called the head of the house Beelzebub, which they did, you can read in other places in the gospel, where when Jesus would cast out demons so that they wouldn't attribute his power to God, they would say that, well, he's just Beelzebub, which means chief of demons. And Jesus says, well, that's kind of ridiculous, because if I was chief of demons, why would I be casting out demons? I mean, that would be counterproductive, wouldn't it? But Jesus says, they called me Beelzebub, they called me chief of demons or prince of demons. So if they called me that and I'm the head of the house and you're a part of my household, they're going to call you some things too. So you can expect it. So verse 26. Now, from verse 26 down through verse 33, he's going to give us another point. And the second point on the list of instruction, if you are going to be a disciple of Christ, what to expect? He says, well, don't be afraid or ashamed. And it has to do with number one. He says, you're going to be persecuted. You might be rejected for being a Christian. Therefore, number two, do not be afraid or ashamed. So let's read verse 26 down through 33. He says, so do not be afraid. He's going to use that phrase three times. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Here it is again. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So, here it is again. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. That's the ashamed part. Don't be ashamed. So in this first section here, he talks about not being afraid. Three times it's repeated, verse 26, verse 28, verse 31. So he knows that, you know, his apostles and even looking down time towards us, that there will be times when standing up for Christ can be a little intimidating. You might from time to time feel intimidated, maybe be a little afraid, and Jesus keeps reminding us, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Uh, and, and he says, look, the worst case scenario, and this may not be all that comforting, but if you put it in eternal perspective, it is. Worst case scenario, they might kill you. <laughs> and he says, but, you know, look, don't worry about who can kill the body. Worry about who can destroy body and soul. He's talking about... God has the power to ultimately send us to hell. But let me just qualify that statement because people all the time who, who are critics of Christianity will say, you see, that's why I can't follow your Jesus because you know, I can't follow a God who would actually send people to hell. Now, notice what Jesus says here, and then I'll, I'll come back to that statement. He says, rather, there in the middle of verse 28, well, verse 28, he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one, this is the Father, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He doesn't say that God sends us there. 
It's as though our bodies, our lives, would be destroyed in hell. Now, this is not the doctrine of annihilation. It doesn't mean that if people go to hell, they are annihilated. The Bible makes it clear that hell is a place of eternal torment and suffering. In fact, the word hell here in the original language, actually the language that Jesus spoke, Aramaic, is Gehenna. If you look in Strong's Dictionary as a definition of this original word, it's the word Gehenna. And Jesus was actually pointing to a literal place as a figurative example of what hell will be like. Now, Gehenna in the Aramaic is a combination of the words Gehenna. Gehenna means the valley of um, Hinnom. And the valley of Hinnom in Israel was the valley that, that came to the very southern tip of the city of Jerusalem, where all the waste and refuse and garbage would be dumped. And it was basically the town dump. It was a garbage heap at the end of the city of Jerusalem. If you look at a map, just the southern tip of of the city, the old city of Jerusalem, was the end of the valley of Hinnom, Gehenom, Gehenna. And that place, that heap of garbage, was perpetually on fire. It was constantly burning. So because, you know, you don't want to live next to a dump, and so they're burning it to, you know, destroy it and, and... And so Jesus is comparing hell like unto Gehenna, and he basically, for them, would have had a visual illustration. See how the city dump is always on fire? See how this is a place of of horrible suffering and torment and fire? That's what this place is like. But now, does God send people there? No, in fact, the Bible says that originally hell was created for Satan and his demons. If you jump further to Matthew chapter 25, look at verse 41 with me. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about judgment that that will follow when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory. And we see that spelled out in verse 31 of Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And then he talks here a little bit about judgment. And then he gets down to the end about those who will be judged because they rejected Christ. And notice verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels doesn't say prepared for man. Hell was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. People only go there, they only join him because they choose to reject Jesus. The Bible says in uh, first, second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God doesn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance. It is God's desire that no one should go to hell. But people will end up in hell because they refuse the free gift of salvation, which is offered by a loving God who sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for you and for me. I don't know anybody in the room who would sacrifice their own child for some other wicked person, let alone a good person. A good person, let alone a wicked person. But God so loved us and our wickedness that he sacrifices his son. It's a demonstration of love. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was a demonstration of God's love for a wicked world. I'm going to sacrifice my son so that all who believe and receive can be saved. Because he doesn't want any to go to hell. But those who end up going to hell go there because they for. They refuse to accept the free gift of God's love and forgiveness and eternal reward in heaven. 
and thereby then they join the devil and the fallen angels, which are the demons. That was the reason hell was prepared in the first place. God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go to hell. Now, uh, sadly, there was a survey done in 2010 of over 5,000 teenagers in the United States between the ages of 14 and 18, just a couple of years ago. Over 5,000 teenagers surveyed between the ages of 14 and 18. 48% do not believe in heaven or hell as real places. 48%, according to this one survey of American teenagers between the age of 14 and 18, do not believe that heaven and hell are real places. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No (laughs) hell below us. Only sky above us. Imagine all the people. Anyway, there's a song about that, right? John Lennon wrote that because that's a tragic thought. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try it. There's no hell below us, above us, only sky. How sad is that? That Imagine that there's no heaven. There is a heaven, and Jesus died that we might go there. Uh, Speaking about heaven and hell... My wife was subbing at school yesterday and came home, and one of the kids in the class said, hey, I remember when your husband, he goes to Cornerstone, I remember when your husband told this joke about uh, hi and hello. It wasn't a joke, but it comes to mind as I'm looking at this, because heaven and hell are real places. And the Puritans, it wasn't a joke, but he's in third grade, he thought I was kidding, because I kid a lot, and people can't tell. Are you kidding? I'm, I, I'm, I was serious, and so let me say it again and, and let everybody know this is serious. This is true. But you get extra information at Cornerstone for no charge. But here's, here's what it is. The Puritans, the Puritans, in the days of the early colonies, they had a saying to reinforce the reality of heaven and hell. And the way that they would greet each other, one person would say to the other, heaven is high, and the other person in response would say, hell is low. So you'd see somebody go, heaven is high, hell is low, heaven is high, hell is low. We've abridged it today to say hi and hello. That's where those words came from. The Puritans used to have those words of greeting to remind each other heaven is a reality and so is hell. Heaven is high, hell is low. Today we say hi and hello. I didn't mean it as a joke. It's a true thing. (laughs) Heaven is real. Hell is real. Jesus died so that as many as would choose him would go to heaven. And only those tragically who reject him would go to hell. But Jesus says here that this is the reality. And he says, don't be worried about those who can destroy only body. Worry about those. Worry about instead the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he, he talks here about not being afraid. Why? Because in verse 29 and in verse 31, he says, you're much more valuable than a sparrow. And he says, you know, when, when you consider the sparrows... He says in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall into the ground apart from the will of your father. I mean, pretty cheap bird, right? But he says, but God loves every sparrow, and he knows when every sparrow falls, and not a single sparrow escapes his care. And that's why at the end in verse 31, he says, so don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. And, and he also reinforces how much he cares for us, because he says in verse 30 that, that he even cares for us down to the very numbers of uh, hair on our head, which is easy counting for some of you. But, uh, but nevertheless, it's a statement about how much God cares for us down to the very numbers of hair on our head. And then he remarks here in verse 32 about don't be ashamed. 
And this is strong language. He says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. We reject Christ, we will be rejected. We acknowledge Christ, we will be acknowledged before the Father. It's as simple as it gets. Now, starting at verse 34, down through verse 37, he's going to tell us another thing to expect as followers of Christ, and that is to be prepared for some family conflict. How many of you can relate? I don't need a show of hands. I'm just because some of your family might be here. Uh, But it's a true statement. Now, let's look at what he says, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 34, he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Well, that sounds depressing, but notice the context. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he's he's saying to us, this third point, that you should be prepared for some family conflict. If, If you're a believer and the rest of your family is not, boy, it makes for some wild reunions. If you've ever spent holidays with people who are not believers and you are, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it it is not only extended family when you when you have like holidays or or you have family reunions and you know you got people who aren't Christians and you are and uh, but it can be even more excruciating when it's down to just your family unit. There's a husband who's a believer and his wife is not, there's a wife who's a believer and her husband is not, it will cause some measure of conflict. It just will. Because as a Christian, see, you are going to be living your life according to a different manual. It's this right here. And how you conduct yourself and how you interact with people and how you manage money and how you give money, and oh, should the kids go to church, and, and all this kind of decision-making about even how to raise children, all of this is going to be very different from the way that a Christian might think and the way someone who doesn't know Christ might think. And now you've got that conflict in your marriage, and, and there will be like a sword in that relationship, not peace. Because again, when you stand for Christ... And you're living your life according to a set of standards that, that are expressed in God's word. And somebody else in your family doesn't agree with it, like it. They might tolerate it or worse, they might be antagonistic towards it. You're going to have some measure of conflict. So that's why it's important. Look, if you are single and thinking about being married and you're a Christian, make sure you marry and start dating before a, a, a person who is a Christian. Because if people get into a marriage where one's a believer and one is not, there is conflict. There just will be. And every marriage has conflict. You don't need more than the norm. All right? And everybody who just chuckled is married. And they, they know what that is about. Now, as Christians, we don't really fight, right? We have intense fellowship. But, but it happens, all right, because you're two people in general. 
But you get two completely different worldviews in the same home under the same roof, and there will be a measure of conflict. Now, some of you have gotten married, and after the fact you came to know Christ, or you got married and didn't know that you shouldn't have married a non-believer, and now you're in a marriage where there's a non-believer. What, what, is, what is God's will for you? Stay married. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Matthew on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can download our mobile app, too, while you're there. It's under On The Go. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45, as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. CornerstoneConnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. And you can meet the staff. If you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us to study Matthew, and we hope you'll tune in again to learn more about Jesus. That's right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know